Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your Son. We are so thankful for the gift of redemption. This is what our songs express. This is what we gather to express. This is what we want our lives to demonstrate. We are so thankful that you, who in all of your glory we can read about in the Psalms or, and sing about, are yet the one who were meek, was meek and lowly, humble of heart, crucified, shamed, mocked, rejected, and yet risen glorious, now at the right hand of the Father and a returning King. How the truth of you stretches our minds and our affections in every direction. What a wonderful God you are. And we ask now as we come into this portion of Matthew in which these final days of you, Christ, on the earth, what we call your passion, as we consider it, we do pray that you would do wonderful things in our hearts and exalt your name and exalt your work and glorify your name in us in, in some fresh ways that you would excite and stir up our worship and obedience and faith all to your everlasting praise and glory. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have, of course, been out of Matthew for quite a while. And we come now to chapter 26. You can open up your Bibles there, verses 1 through 5. It has been such a delight. I know that I speak for all of us who are here and um, those who've been with us that aren't here this morning that we have been so served in the ministry of the Word, looking at the life of Joseph, looking at some episodes in the life of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, going through Ephesians 4 and seeing this glorious display of the church and the way that our salvation should affect our body life. And it's just been a wonderful, wonderful uh, time in the Word of God. Although I must confess that I am glad personally to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we are going to be here for a while. We're going to finish it. And so I hope that we can do that uh, before 2017. Actually, I hope we're not here in 2017. We're with the Lord of glory. But in case we are, I would hope to be uh, finished with the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I want to begin by saying what we're going to do this morning is introduce some major themes that really are themes throughout all of Scripture. There are certainly themes throughout this last week in the life of Christ. Uh, again, what we call His Passion Week, the account of His suffering. And we'll cover these themes in more detail as we walk through this account, as I said, in the weeks and in the months ahead, but I want to introduce them to us here and lift our hearts up to the glory of God in Christ. Now, in one sense, some of these themes are very obvious, and it is because of that very reason that they're so obvious that sometimes we can miss them, and so hopefully we'll be uh, paying attention to them a little more closely uh, this morning. As I said, we're going to begin here in the first five verses of Matthew 26. And a summary of it, it's there in your bulletin, would be this. That it's five exhortations that flow out of these uh, five themes that are woven throughout the count. And, and the exhortations in these themes are all uh, calls for us to consider, to meditate, to behold, to love the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
So read with me these first five verses, and then we'll look at these themes more closely. Beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And then the chief priest and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. As I mentioned with these five verses, Jesus and Matthew in the account of the life of Jesus takes us from these glorious words of the majesty of the king who is returning and we enter now into this final week which is the very center of Christian confession that is the suffering of the Son of God for us. When Jesus, or when Matthew says, when Jesus finished all of these words in the beginning of verse 26, or the chapter 26, he's probably relating here, referring back to all of his teaching about the final days on the earth, his return, the establishment of his kingdom. And so those are the things in the readers of Matthew that are still, that's still ringing in their ears. They still hear of the wonder of his return and the glory of the Father and with all of the holy angels. And so all the more the contrast then is set for this introduction into the final week of Christ. As we are thrust into the events of his suffering for us. And the first thing that I want us to notice here then is the uniqueness of God. That is the first theme. That we are to behold the uniqueness of God. And this is really one of those themes that might be easy to miss or take for granted, really as we go throughout all of the Gospels, but particularly here in the final days of Christ. The other uniqueness of God. Now one thing that we've noticed throughout the Gospels is that Jesus is utterly different than anybody expected. Indeed, in fact, as we would look at the proclamation of the gospel throughout the earliest centuries, we see that the message that the church proclaimed was hard to understand. It was very different. The God that was being proclaimed there and the salvation that was being offered to men was new to the ears of man. In other words, God is utterly unique and everything that he's done in Christ is utterly unique. And yet what God was to do in the cross of Christ and what he has done is the very center of our profession, our proclamation of our hope. Now for the Jews, this is of course evident throughout, but probably most evident at the beginning of this week when he entered into Jerusalem, if as you remember, on a donkey, humble and lowly. He didn't enter in as a conqueror on the white stallion so much as we see in our movies and really would have been uh, indicative of how rulers who are conquering rulers would have paraded through the city. He enters in on a donkey, humble and lowly. We are well familiar with the fact that The Jews expected a conquering Messiah, only a conquering Messiah, one who was going to break off the chains that had so long oppressed them in the form of the Roman government. But a suffering servant was not in their view, is not what they were expecting. 
But it's not just the Jews. The revelation of God in Christ, as I mentioned, is utterly unique. And it's contrary to any perception of God and any understanding of his salvation that has ever entered into the mind of a Jew or a Gentile. No God like the true God has ever been conceived in the mind of man. And I want to just briefly note two ways, two ways that this uniqueness of God then is manifest, particularly here, but again, throughout all of the Gospels and throughout all of the New Testament. And the first is this, in His humanity. In His humanity. And again, this first point may not be the most obvious or the, mo- the thing that you think of first when coming to this portion of Scripture, but it is for that very reason that it is so obvious that we can somehow miss it. But yet it is the most plain thing for us to consider first. Namely, that the one who is before them, the one who has been before them, and the one who is speaking to them is, in fact, a man. A man. Fully a man. And yet he is a man who has, throughout his ministry, claimed to be more than just a man. He has claimed to be God. He has claimed to be equal to God in every way. And yet here he stands before them in the flesh. And so he uses a title in verse 2 there, you can see, that we're familiar with, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Which, as we know, is a title that includes the idea of deity as well as humanity. In chapter 9, verse 6, where Pastor Bigelow took us several weeks ago, we saw that the deity of Christ in that Son of Man title was displayed in that he has the authority to forgive sin. Who has the authority to forgive sin? God has the authority to forgive sin. It's something that he claims for himself. We've seen it in the account of the Olivet Discourse, this explanation of his return, that he is one who shares glory with the Father. He shares worship that goes to God alone. He receives to himself. In that way, declaring himself equal with God. And again, they're under the title, Son of Man. And here he is then using this same identification, the same title, Son of Man. And yet what he's going to reveal is not his equality with God in glory and authority and power and in majesty or in his works. But he is saying he's going to be handed over. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And it's important to understand, and what I think is so important for us to see here is that this revelation of God is something that is fundamentally offensive to the fallen mind. It's fundamentally offensive to the fallen mind. Man would never, could never, has never conceived of a God like the God who is and like the God who is revealed in the person of Christ. It is one of the most offensive realities to fallen men that God is fully man in the person of Christ, that he is the Son of God. To the Greeks, let me mention this briefly, the idea of uniting humanity, uh, deity uniting to humanity was laughable. It was a point of great derision. It was used to mock the early Christians. Celsus, an early uh, 
uh, antagonist to the proclamation of the gospel in the second century, wrote the first extended treatment against Christians in a work called True Doctrine. He was answered by a church father you're probably familiar with, Origen, uh, and against Celsius was that work. But in that work, a True Doctrine by Celsius, he says this, in, in relation to God's descent into humanity, he says this, that there has already descended upon the earth a certain God or Son of God who will make the inhabitants of the earth righteous is a most shameless assertion. It's shameless. And one, the refutation of which does not need many words. Again, this was, this was scandalous to the Greek mind. It was a point of derision and mocking. And to the Jews, of course, it wasn't really any different. Every claim of Christ in which he revealed his equality with God, they found that their very soul, that their very identity and their very being to be abhorrent. To be abhorrent. To be blasphemous. Even the disciples, excluding Judas Iscariot, who were believers, had a hard time grasping that. And before the coming of the Spirit and not until after the resurrection were they able to come to a place to understand it even more fully. So if it was hard for the believing mind, the unbelieving mind, it was impossible. And in fact, a claim that was worthy of death. A claim that was worthy of death. Now... We've seen that kind of reaction throughout the Gospels. We particularly see it in the Gospel of John. When Jesus, after working on the Sabbath, claims to have the prerogatives of the Father, the Father to be working on the Sabbath, being equal to God. He says, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. What did they want to do? Verse 18 of John 5, Therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They wanted him dead because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Absolutely offensive that a man would do that. Let me mention to you one other place in this interaction that Jesus has with him. He has made the statement, I and the father are one. And in response to everything that he's been teaching them and that Magnificent statement. It says in verse 33, The Jews answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And what is the blasphemy? This. You, being a man, make yourself to be God. You see, that, that, those two things together were absolutely offensive to them. They were abhorrent. They refused to accept that. How can a man who is standing before us in flesh and blood be God? And yet this is precisely what Jesus claimed. He claimed to be the eternal judge. He claimed to share in the glory of the Father. He claimed to be the one who receives worship even as the Father. And yet here he tells them that he is also to be handed over for crucifixion. And probably it's that last point that's even more difficult for them to understand. It's almost like you can hear in the mind of the disciples, okay, all right. So if we can just begin to grapple with the fact that you are divine, even though they didn't really understand that, but that you are equal to God, then the assumption after that, well, then clearly the one equal to God is the conqueror, is the one who rules, is the one who acts only in power and might. 
But to even begin to grapple with the fact that this God, their God, has united himself to humanity. And then, on top of that, to claim that this is the one who would be crucified, who would be killed, that's simply unthinkable. It's simply unthinkable. And that is the second point, then, of his God's uniqueness that's revealed here. Not only that he is a man, but that he is one who is coming to suffer and die. So then it's the humility, the humanity and the humility. Again, they could understand that in terms of a display of power. They could understand that in terms of a display of rule and authority. But suffering? Suffering? Jesus made this point in Matthew 20, 25. Just listen. You're familiar with it. You know the rulers of the Gentiles do what? They lord it over them, right? And their great men exercise authority over them. Which at its base means essentially this, that authority and power and positions of rule and honor by men are used essentially for self-serving means. Now there were benefactors, there were good things that they did, but let me tell you, the rulers and the Caesars in Rome, despite their supposed Beneficence to the nation of Rome were wicked people. They were wicked and cruel people. And they understood that, that ultimate power was used then for self-serving means. That's the typical course of human affairs. And the Greek gods were little better. But here it is one that is going to, in just the opposite of that, suffer, suffer. Now the Jews, of course, were not wrong totally to expect a conqueror, right? That's throughout the Old Testament and the prophets. They were right to expect one who would come and who would rule. That Daniel 7, the son of man, is one who's going to what? He's going to receive a kingdom. He's going to receive a dominion. He's going to receive power and authority to rule over the nations and they will honor him and respect him. They, so they understood that. That's not wrong. In Zechariah 14, he's going to a king who's going to return in judgment, plant his feet in Jerusalem, and be a king over all of the earth. So it's not that those things were wrong. In Psalm 2, the divine son was going to be one who would rule over the nations with a rod of iron. So there's a sense in which... They were right to think that. They were right to think that. But they couldn't mirror that, mirror that, marry that together with the idea of him suffering. You remember when Jesus told his disciples that in Matthew 16, that he was going to be rejected by the leaders and killed. What did Peter do? He took him aside. God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. Never. It's, it's, that's, that's unthinkable. You are the Messiah. The idea that you would suffer is simply we don't have a category for that. There's no way that that's going to happen. There's no way that's going to happen. Even up to the very last night of the, of, after Jesus is nearly three years with them, the very last night, they could not conceive of this idea of him suffering, of him lowering himself. In John 13, of course, is... One way to illustrate the abhorrence of this to the Jews. John 13, he's sharing a meal. You're aware with these disciples. This is an extended account of the Last Supper that Jesus is having with uh, his disciples. At the beginning of it, they're all, 12 of them are in the room. And, and so here they are around the table. And John tells us that 
the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. And no doubt that part of the reason of Judas's desire to betray Christ was because Christ had so disappointed him. He was expecting a ruler. He's, as they're getting closer to the final week, Judas realizes that he's not going to be this ruler. He's not going to usher in this glorious kingdom. He is not the one that I wanted for his own self-serving purposes. And that is no doubt part of the reason in his thinking behind his betrayal of Christ. And the events that are going to unfold uh, now are only going to strengthen that. They would have been outright distasteful to him. No doubt at this point, he disdained Christ in his heart. Disdained him. How could you be so weak being the Messiah? And so what does Christ do? Well, you're familiar with it. We're not going to go through it. He took off some of his outer garments, girded himself with a towel, filled a, a bowl, a water bowl with water, and began to go around the room and to wash the disciples' feet, taking on that lowly position of a slave, washing their dirty feet. And when he comes to Peter, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, there's no way that I'm ever going to let you do that. Why? Because you are the Lord. You are the Lord. That was absolutely unthinkable. But what was Jesus doing? He was doing this. He was redefining their very conception of God. He was redefining their very conception of God and their relationship that they were to have with him and with one another. So in other words, washing their feet as a slave was only a foretaste of his greater humility in giving himself up to be crucified for their sin. So if washing their feet, if him lowering himself to wash their feet was unthinkable, how much more unthinkable was it that he would go to the cross and be rejected? The idea here is this. It was utterly a unique revelation of God in their minds. In their minds. And again, it was was foolishness. Foolishness to the fallen mind of man. As a matter of fact, just a, one illustration of how this was perceived again in the early church. One of the earliest pictures that we have, are, uh, it's graffiti and it's, uh, it's, it's on a stone and it's a picture of uh, a cross. And on this cross there is a figure with the body like the man and the head of a donkey. And then it has a, a figure off to the side and hands raised up and, and the inscription underneath it says, Alexamonus worships his God. He worships his God. That was the kind of derision that the fallen mind had in response to the idea that a God would suffer unthinkable. It has not entered into the mind of man. And let me assert to you, beloved, that that in and of itself is a testimony to the divine nature of Scripture. It is supernatural. The divine nature of Christ because never would man conceive of a God that is revealed that it, like the one that is revealed in Christ. It is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it is foolishness to the Greeks, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, and it is the wisdom of God. And so I ask you, what about you? What about you? Have you seen in Christ, have you seen in the uniqueness of God, the glory of God? Is that something that is precious to you? Have you seen the glory in this? 
So Christ here is doing more than providing for our redemption. He is utterly transforming fallen man's conception of God and of divine love. And I would just make a side note here on this. Is that the gospel and the true proclamation of God is utterly countercultural? In other words, we don't, as Christians, then reach the world by watering down and lessening, the, lessening these distinctions, but by magnifying them. The God we proclaim is unique, the God we proclaim is powerful. He is a man who has died for our sin. So, the first thing to notice here is that God is utterly unique. This is God that has never entered into the mind of man, and yet it is the God in whom we have placed our hope. Note secondly here is we, that we are then to trust in the sovereignty and the providence of God. We're to behold His uniqueness and trust in the sovereignty of God. The events that were soon to come upon the disciples and the other followers of Jesus were going to throw them in intellectual, spiritual, and emotional chaos. Their whole world was soon to become unraveled, absolutely unraveled. They simply would not be able to understand these events. As a matter of fact, to them, it would have seemed like everything was spinning out of control. The betrayal of Judas, the coming of the Roman soldiers and the leaders of the Jews, Christ, who was so powerful, just declared his return as king, being whisked away as a common criminal, and then undergoing the ridicule of these leaders. They didn't know how to comprehend this. It's like everything was in chaos The only one who wasn't confused throughout these events is Christ himself. He's the only one who understood God's sovereign hand in it all. And one of the most amazing realities behind this sovereign hand of God in this is what? What do you think? That it's the Father that's doing this. It's the Father who's doing this. He is the one orchestrating every event. He is the one who, by his own sovereign hand, has planned and is making sure that the humiliation and the suffering of the Son is as as much as it possibly could be. That's the Father. That's his Father who's doing this. It's what Isaiah prophesied, prophesied. That he, being the father, was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He was pleased to do it. The father is doing this. But it's equally a sovereign act of the son in this way. In submitting and giving up his life out of love for the father. It's equally a sovereign act of the son. He's submitting to the plan of the father, yes. But he's doing it as God and he's doing it willingly. Listen to what he said in John 17. He says, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay, da- I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So as we think of the sovereignty of God going through these accounts, it is the sovereignty of the Father who is planning it, but it is the sovereignty of the Son who, as God, is willingly submitting to it. And again, this idea is just absolutely offensive to the fallen mind. The idea that 
the son, an innocent, would suffer in the place of criminals. It's offensive. It's immoral. The late Christopher Hitchens said this in a debate. I would submit to you that the doctrine of vicarious redemption through human sacrifice is utterly immoral. It's immoral. God could be charged with sin if that is in fact true. Others refer to it as divine child abuse. However, this fails to understand two things. The cost of human sin and the fact that Christ gave himself willingly. Willingly. Now, let me just briefly note here three ways that God's sovereignty is shown in this account. Three ways that God's sovereignty is shown throughout this account. And the first is this, the timing of his death. The timing of his death, the Passover. Look at what he says. After two days, the Passover is coming. So, in other words, it was absolutely essential that Christ be sacrificed on the Passover. It had to happen that way. Remember John's proclamation that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He had to be that Passover lamb sacrificed for his people. And it's absolutely overwhelming to think of every detail that was sovereignly in the hand of the Father to make it happen on the Passover. It wasn't a day too early. It wasn't a day too late. It wasn't a week off. It wasn't a month off. It was in two days is the Passover. That needs to be the day. That day. And God had prepared and anticipated it for over 1,500 years from the time that he delivered his people from Israel, instituted the feast, and now it was to take place. Look at verse 18 of Matthew 26. Going to prepare the place, he says to his disciples, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, what? My time is near. Keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The time has come. The Passover is here. Now, why was the Passover so important? Let me give you just a couple of reasons or a few. One is, of course, to fulfill Scripture. It is to symbolically display, of course, that Christ is the sacrifice for the nation. Paul calls Christ our Passover. He has been slain. But I think one of the main reasons outside of the symbolic nature of it and the fulfillment of prophecy, which are, of course, essential, but one of the main reasons that it had to happen on the Passover is this. Ready? What do you think? Because it was public. It was public. If Christ was going to be sacrificed and God was going to accomplish the redemption of the world, as it were, he wanted it to be where all could see. Everybody could see it. He didn't do these things in a corner. He did them before the whole of the watching world. Listen to this in Romans chapter 3. After saying that this righteousness of God that would be accomplished in Christ was witnessed by the law and the prophets, he says this, We're justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Listen, verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. God did it publicly. He did it for the whole world to see. He held up his son and his suffering and said, Here, here is my redemption. Here is my salvation. What I'm doing in the son. This is exactly what Paul said to Festus when he was there making his defense over the gospel. 
He says this, The king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. It hasn't been done in some secret somewhere. God hasn't done some subtle little thing. He sent his Christ as the prophet's had said, he came, he did a public ministry, and then he went on to the cross in the most public way possible, which in this case would be on the Passover. It's estimated that possibly there were anywhere from about two, between two and three million people in Jerusalem at this time. He waited till the time that all of the nation was gathered together, and it's like, now that I've got you in one spot, look, look, here is your Christ. Here is your Messiah, and here is my son on the cross. He wanted the whole world to see this. The whole world to see this. And look at this. Notice this. Look at verse 5 or verse 4. These leaders were plotting together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. In other words, the fact that it was going to happen on the Passover completely contradicted the intentions of these leaders. They wanted to do it in secret out of their wickedness. And yet, God had determined that it would happen in front of everybody. And so he overturned it. He overturned it. And part of the way that he overturned it was allowing Satan to put into the heart of Judas to go and betray him. Look at verse 14. He went to the chief priest and he says, What are you willing to give me to betray him? That's not something that the leaders were expecting. And so when Judas came to them, one of his own disciples, and said, I'll betray him, they had to accelerate their plans. But that was perfectly according to the plan of God that he would be crucified on the Passover. So the sovereignty of God is displayed in the timing of the event. Secondly, in the manner of his death, crucifixion. It would be on the Passover, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, Jesus had already told them the kind of death that he was going to die repeatedly. Matthew 16 and verse, and in chapter 20, 19, he says they're going to crucify him. He was totally submitted to this as the plan of the Father. He says the same thing in Luke 22, 22. But this is an amazing display of the sovereignty of God. Not only that Christ had said that it was going to happen before it was going to happen. But consider this. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 that the Son was sent forward in the fullness of time. In other words, and out of all of human history, God had determined exact point in which the world would be prepared in every way for the sending forth of His Son to accomplish His redemption. Now consider this a bit farther. That the crucifixion and death by crucifixion was not just what happened to be available to God. God had determined and sovereignly prepared the world and the practice of crucifixion to be the most shameful, barbaric, and torturous means of death that man would invent so that it would be the very perfect and designed instrument by which the Son of God was to die and to be held up to the world as a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sin. All of human history was designed by God so that He would be crucified. He wouldn't be shot. He wouldn't be stabbed with a spear. He wouldn't be pushed off a cliff. He wouldn't be stoned. He would be crucified. 
That's exactly the way that God wanted it, and that's exactly the way that it was going to happen. And he had already anticipated that in Zechariah chapter 12, looking forward to the one who was going to be pierced, a reference there to crucifixion, most likely. A third way that this sovereignty is shown, one in the, that the timing of the Passover, the manner of the crucifixion, and third here is the consensus of, of his death, the evil counsel. Look, they plotted together to seize him by stealth, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur by the people. The leaders had been trying to apprehend Christ throughout his ministry. This wasn't the first time the idea of killing him. We read it in John chapter 7 this morning. They wanted to kill him. But his time had not yet come. His time had not yet fully come. Even Herod tried to take him away, but to no avail, Luke 13, because it was not yet his time. Luke 13, 31 through 32. And so here now, the leaders, though, are gathered together, plotting to take Christ secretly and to kill him. And here's the thing. They think that they are in absolute control. In their minds, they're running the show. And by observation from the disciples and others who were there, it could appear that the fate of Jesus was totally in the hands of Judas the betrayer and the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders. It would have appeared by all appearances that Jesus was subject to their will. That he was at the hands of their mercy. But of course that's just the opposite. Just the opposite. They were, as Psalm 2 anticipated, like the nations gathered together against the Son. And yet all of these things are an unfolding picture of God's sovereignty. Listen, Working through human beings, making moral, spiritual, reasoned, intentional choices for which they are accountable. He's not forcing them to do this. The thought is in their mind. The desire is in their heart. They discuss it among each other. And they commit a wicked deed. And yet, it's exactly as God intended Every decision they make is the will of the Father for the suffering of His Son. Every decision. Listen to Peter in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Your act of wickedness, God would use for the greatest display of his grace. But God was in absolute control. And think about this. Peter needed to be reminded of this because this same hostility evidenced against Christ then, uh, back in the time when he would, when these events are unfolding, he would be overwhelmed. He would act in fear. And what was he going to do? He was going to deny him. He, like all of the disciples, scattered away. They were in confusion and they were in fear and it seemed like everything was out of control and everything was confusing. And here, there, Peter, the rock, even denied him. He was frightened. He was confused. He didn't know what to do. And so he 
ran away and he said he didn't know him because he didn't understand what God was doing. He didn't understand what he understood in Acts chapter 2, that God was the one sovereignly doing this. God was the one doing it. And let me tell you, beloved, if we do not have an adequate view of God's sovereignty, you will be subject to those same reactions of fear, not only in suffering, but in life. Events come upon you that you simply can't understand. They are events that overwhelm you. They are events where it seems like everything is out of control. And if you don't have an understanding of the sovereignty of God and as a Christian, the goodness of God in your life, you're going to be just like that. You're going to be thrown into chaos. You're going to be weak. You're going to lack courage. You're going you're to be confused. But it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. When we understand the sovereignty of God in our lives, it enables us to act with courage, to act in hope, even in the midst of the most confusing and horrible events. Peter eventually got this. Listen to what he says later in Acts chapter 4. This is after they had been persecuted and beat and sent on their way. He says this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. In other words, everybody. Verse 28, To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. He said, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may be speak your word with all confidence. With all confidence. You see, they got it. They got it eventually. We watched uh, Polycarp uh, the other day, Friday, some of us. And uh, in the story of his life, one of the things, there were many things that were uh, noted in this. But one of it is how they were experiencing this transition from everything being okay to all of a sudden they were giving their life for their faith. And all of a sudden they were being called to the Colosseum because of their testimony of Christ. But they had already developed a strong trust in God. They knew him and they served him. And so many of them died with valor and in the power and the strength of the Spirit of God in their lives. And we, as a church, don't know what is coming upon us in our lives. We have an increasingly hostile environment against the gospel of Christ. Maybe we will never have that kind of suffering. Maybe we will. But I'll tell you, if you don't grasp the sovereign hand of God in that time of testing, there will be weakness and discouragement and confusing confusion. But it need not be that way. So here is the sovereign hand of God throughout, the uniqueness of God, the sovereign hand of God in note number three, and we're going to go through these last ones a little more quickly. First is then we are then to delight, rest in the authority of Scripture. And this is closely related to the sovereign hand of God, the sovereignty of God. The same God who gave the Scripture, who upholds and rules his creation, is the same God who foretold these events by whose plan they came to pass. The scriptures had already told this. Not only was God in control, not only was he fulfilling his purpose, but he had already told them, wrote it down in a book, and gave it to them. Everything that was happening was according to the scriptures. I declared to you as of first importance what? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. What? According to to the scriptures. Don't believe me? Look at the scriptures. They foretold these events. 
He had to explain to some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, come on, guys. It's there. It's there. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Later he said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you on earth, that all the things that are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And we would pray that and we would say, God, help in my mind that I would understand the scriptures. Opened my mind that I would see your glory on the pages of Scripture. That I would miss no detail of your beauty and your power and your authority and the wonder of you. I would miss no reality of your promises. I would miss nothing. God, open my eyes. Open my eyes. So Scripture was clear to foretell of the person and the events of the Messiah. And we're not going to go through all of these. Let me just give you a quick sampling here said of his betrayal by a close friend in Psalm 41.9. His abandonment of the disciples was anticipated in Zechariah 13. Judas's destruction was anticipated in Zechariah 11 and his betrayal. Christ's silence before Pilate was anticipated in Isaiah 53 like a lamb that is silent before its shears. His being considered a transgressor, Isaiah 53.12, he was numbered among transgressors. His being given gall to drink, Psalm 69, 21. His crucifixion, Zechariah 12, 10. They're dividing his garments, Psalm 22, 18. His bones unbroken go all the way back to Exodus 12, Psalm 22, 17. His cry of forsakenness, Psalm 22, 1. You could go on and on and on. And as we go through the account, Christ will on more than three occasions say that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And many more could be added. But here's the point to it. God bore irrefutable witness to every event that would take place in the suffering of the incarnate Son. And it is only the most willful and intentional ignorance that denies the plain reality of the divine testimony to the person of Christ. It's Romans 1.18. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Let me just give you an example. This is meant to be more than interesting, but just to give you a, a, maybe a, a little feel for this, a taste for this. Now, somebody has calculated, those people who like numbers, uh, which is not me, but some of those who like numbers and figure these things out, figured that if only eight of the prophecies concerning Christ came true. Now, note, there are a hundred very specific ones, over 300 general prophecies to Christ, and that's not even including the pictures and the symbolism and all of that kind of stuff, the temple and the priesthood, everything that was prepared. This is just very direct prophecies. If only eight of the Old Testament prophecies uh, were to come true, the odds of that are one in 100 quadrillion. That's one with 17 zeros. And a way to illustrate that would be like this. He goes on. That it would be like covering the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. Marking one of those coins, painting it red or whatever. Blindfolding somebody and then giving them one shot to pick a coin and it would be that coin. Those are the odds of just eight of those coming true. And yet all of Scripture in the Old Testament with over a hundred very specific prophecies point to Christ that he fulfilled exactly. And nothing that he could create of himself. But his life perfectly conformed to what God anticipated. 
every detail of the living word fulfilled the written word, every jot and tittle. And beloved, that is the divine origin of Scripture. And it's meant, ultimately, why would God do that? Why would God do that and record that for us? Ultimately, not only to bear witness to Christ, but to give us confidence in His Word. To give us confidence in His Word. To encourage us to confirm the testimony of Christ and to know that everything that's revealed in the Word of God about Christ and His promises are to be an anchor for our soul. You hold in your hands the infallible and the inerrant Word of God that is trustworthy, that is sufficient, that is authoritative. And we are to rest in every detail and pour ourselves into understanding it so that we could know His promises and that we could behold Christ in it. We're to meditate and trust in, the, in everything that God has said. Number four, we're to understand then the nature of sin and evil. Sin has as its ultimate end nothing less than the destruction of God. Have you ever thought about it that way? The ultimate end of sin, John Owen said uh, long ago, sin aims at it the utmost. It aims at the utmost. In other words, that sin always has as its end goal the completion of all of its desires and its lust. If it ever stops before then, then, then its intention has been frustrated, but that is the goal. And so the intention of sin ultimately is to kill God, is to destroy him. It's not to make peace with him, it is to remove him off of the scene. This is true of the father of sin, Satan, whose whole career as a fallen angel is committed to the destruction of God and the ruin of his purposes. And get this, it's no different than with the sin inside you and me, the nature of it anyway. That's the nature of sin. Darkness hates the light because light exposes it as being wicked. That's what Jesus said in John 7. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testified that its deeds are evil. And so it hates me. If we think then of why the LGBT movement is so aggressive, why are they so aggressive Why do they not want compromise? Why does this spirit of the age of secularism and the new atheism, why do they want complete submission? Because they want to silence anything that would testify to the immorality and the wrongness of their lifestyle. That voice has to be utterly silenced. And until there is complete submission, there will be no rest for them. That's why... That's why sin wants to cover itself up, to hide. And again, let me tell you, that's obvious in those who do not have the Spirit of God. But we believers can be guilty of that same thing. When we lie or we try to cover up our sin or minimize it in any way or get angry at those who might lovingly expose it or even unlovingly expose it, we're doing the same thing. That's the nature of sin. It wants to hide. It wants to be safe and it wants to fulfill all of its lust. And so it is with these leaders. Jesus has exposed their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, their wickedness throughout his ministry, and they needed to get him off the scene. They needed him dead. That's the only answer. They'd been unsuccessful up to this point, but now's their opportunity, and the nature of sin is put on full display. What are they going to do? We've got to murder God. 
Get him off of the scene. Kill him. We're looking like fools before all of the people. He's going to ruin us. He's going to ruin our nation. And he's going to ruin our position in this nation. He must be killed. He was rejected by his own and rejected by the world he created, John tells us in the prologue. So I'd ask you, though, how do you view sin in your own life? And how do you react when it's exposed? The nature of it is put on display here, but how about you? How about you? Do you understand the nature of sin in your own heart and do you fight it? That was Owen's point in making what he said earlier. Do you understand that? If, some, if your sin is exposed, do you try to hide it? Do you try to minimize it? Or do you say, I want to fully feel the conviction of it so that I might turn to Christ and know his grace. And I might be holy. Well, this is the nature of sin. Let me move quickly to the last point here. The fifth thing here then for us to see is to embrace the love of God. To embrace the love of God. Then this account also, of course, one of the great themes is the love of God. In the greatest act of human evil and wickedness, there is the most glorious display. And listen, these are important to say these two things together. Of God's justice and love. Justice and love. There is no understanding of the love of God without understanding the justice of God. And the holiness of God. They are wed together and they meet at the cross. The justice of God in pouring out his wrath on human sin and the love of God in bearing that wrath himself in the incarnate son to forgive all those who trust him. The justice and the love of God. In man's most heinous act of treachery against God, he accomplished his greatest work of redemption. Now we hear a lot about the love of God. What is the love of God? What does that mean? To hear about the love of God talked about, you would think that the substance of it is this, showing kindness to your neighbor, walking in humility before others and sacrificing yourself before them, being kind and patient with those who offend us, or being generous with our time and possessions in order to serve others. Listen, all of those things demonstrate the love of God, but they are not the substance of the love of God. They are fruits of the love of God. But let me suggest this to you. That all of those things that I just mentioned could be practiced by somebody who utterly rejects Christ. By somebody in a cult. By somebody who says, I have no need of Christ's redemption. They can display all of those things. Sometimes unbelievers are nicer than believers. We all know that. They're more generous than believers. What is the substance of it? It's this. It's this. The substance of the love of God, the substance of Christian love, is the cross. It's the atonement of Christ for sinners. That's it. So if if we as Christians, as we did in that movie on Friday night, talk about the love of God all day long, but the love of God is not grounded in the atonement of Christ for our sins, we are being inadequate witnesses to God's love. It is a love that is Christocentric. It's centered on the cross. That is where... Scripture says that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Enemies, the ungodly, sinners, rebels, Christ died for us. There is the love of God. That is the love of God that I am to emulate. That is the love of God that I trust in. That is the love of God that is to be demonstrated in my life and in yours. There is no love of God apart from the atonement. 
I'm going to end with these words by Paul. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says later, may, I, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. And so here is the account then of the love of God for his own people. Christ entering into these final days to give himself as a sacrifice. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And I hope that that is a glory of Christ that you have already seen and trusted in and will come to even more in in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this plan of yours before the foundation of the world. That the Son would come and redeem us from our sin. How deep our sin runs. How helpless we are of our own. Each one of us coming into this world with a bent toward rebellion, disobedience, unbelief in all of its forms. And it is to people like us that you have sent your son to bear the penalty of your divine justice against our sin on the cross publicly for all to see. And then raise him from the dead, saying that this sacrifice is completed, it is accepted, it is perfect. And that same crucified one is returning in glory. May we delight in that message, having confidence in your word, delighting in your love, trusting in your sovereignty, glorying in your uniqueness, and obeying you and serving you with all of our lives. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. John,